says, to our Jewish friends and neighbors, we were deeply shocked and saddened by the terrible attack on Israel on the 7th of October. We extend our deepest sympathy to Israel and Jewish people who've been so cruelly attacked by Hamas terrorists. We're saddened by the suffering on both sides as a result of this war, which has been caused by those who are opposed to peace and want the destruction of Israel. We join with many Christians who are praying for Israel's safety and that this war will not spread further. We're appalled at the anti-Semitism and hatred for Israel being expressed on the streets of London and in social media. We believe the scriptures which tell us that God will restore and keep Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declare it in the hours afar off. Say he who scattered Israel will keep him, will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Jeremiah 31, verse 10. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Psalm 122. We commit ourselves to stand by Israel and the Jewish people at this time as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We seek to inform our people of the real issues behind the conflict in the Middle East and to resist the anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism that is spreading in our land. Then there's a prayer, a Jewish prayer. O say shalom bim ramav hu yaseh shalom aleinu ve al kol Israel ve emru amen. May he who brings peace to the heavens bring peace to us and to all Israel. Let everyone say amen. Amen. Well, we do want to make you aware of what's happening in Israel. Um, I think before I, I do speak, I'll just uh, read a little bit from Amir Safati's latest uh, production. Amir, if you know him, is a Jewish believer, lives in Israel, and has ministry around the world, actually, sharing what's happening in Israel and in the light of the Bible and prophecies. Um, Shalom from a very different Israel than we had a month ago. Back then, we were mired in political friction. There was a huge divide over judicial reform with threats being leveled from all sides. Culturally, we were not just two different countries with a conservative population and a liberal population, but we had countless subgroups centered around religious beliefs and lifestyles, choices and ethnic backgrounds. When I looked at my nation back then, I felt incredible sorrow. We were a nation fighting an internal war. I could see my country falling apart. That's no longer so. When you look at Israel now, you see one country, one people. We're Israelis, and if you harm one of us, you harm us all. As a nation, we were attacked. As a nation, we were murdered and tortured and kidnapped. As a nation, we will have our vengeance on those who perpetrated these heinous acts on our children, our elderly, our women, and our men. We will ensure that those who attacked us will never have the capability to do it again because we know that if they could, they would. Hamas didn't just say, get this out of their system, and now they're ready to play nice. They're the same evil anti-Semitic Nazis they've always been. They will not be satisfied until every Jew has been pushed into the sea. That's not going to happen. But Amir, you're a believer in Jesus. Shouldn't you turn the other cheek? I'll answer that in two ways. First, nowhere in Scripture is a nation told to turn the other cheek. There's no Bible passage that tells the government they must accept evil done to it and respond in love. Perhaps throughout scripture it is the state that is used by God as his weapon against evil. Currently Israel is that weapon in God's hand and he is using it to eradicate the demonic terrorists who carried out such vile and malicious crimes against the innocents. Second, as believers we have a responsibility to protect the innocent. Yes, Jesus said that turning the other cheek is the correct action when struck, but he said that in a certain context and in relation to a specific situation. If I'm being attacked and I felt it is appropriate to respond to my attacker in love, then I should do so. But if a child is being attacked, 
my response must be protection of the innocent by whatever means is necessary and proper. Israel's, action meets, Israel's actions meet that necessary and proper criteria, protect the innocent and eradicate evil. More and more nations are soon going to find themselves in the same situation, making the same types of choices, because this radical anti-Semitism, and in many circumstances its accompanying universalist Islamist vision, is not going to remain localised to the Middle East. This war is a global event, and it has ramifications around the world. It says about Gaza, the Israeli assault is continuing in Gaza. plan is to cut the Gaza Strip in two, which will allow the Israeli Defence Forces to wrap themselves around and eventually surround Shifa Hospital, the main hospital in Gaza. Now, before you start saying, see, we told you that Israel likes to bomb hospitals, let me tell you why they are doing that. Within the hospital compound, both built both above and below ground, are Hamas's main headquarters, with bombs, sheltered, bombs underneath it. Once again, we see the difference between Hamas and the IDF. Hamas targets innocent civilians. The IDF warns civilians that they can escape. The reason non-combatants are killed is because Hamas forces them to remain behind to maintain the human shield so that they can use their bodies afterward as propaganda for the world's media. Hamas has had billions of dollars poured into it. Where's it all gone? First of the mass leaders, Hamas Deputy Chairman Musa Abu Mazouk is worth $3 billion. Former Chairman Khaled Mashal is worth $4 billion. Current Chairman Ismail Hanina is also worth $4 billion. Understandable, though, because it takes a lot of money to pay for their luxury housing in Turkey and Qatar. I mean, you wouldn't expect them to live in Gaza amongst the riffraff, would you? Most of the remaining money went to the construction of an intricate multi-level system of 1,300 tunnels that stretch for 500 kilometres and reach 70 metres deep. That's wrong bit. The flaw in this tunnel system is that it needs gas for generators to power the ventilation system. So while there is food and water in Gaza, as well as electricity in most areas, gas is very difficult to find. That's because the IDF has confiscated all the gas they can find. No gas, no ventilators, no ventilators, no air. No air, the terrorists will be forced to scurry out of their holes. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's correct, but I think that's probably true, actually. Uh, goes on to say, Iran desperately wants their militias in southern Syria to do something directed at Israel. So far, there have only been occasional rocket or artillery fire. Hezbollah in Lebanon is receiving the same pressure from Iran. The skirmishes across the Lebanese-Israeli border have been more intense than those with Syria, but they've still mostly been in the form of rockets and airstrikes. However, there have been border breaches that have had to be dealt with by the IDF. Hassan Nasrallah, Secretary General of the Hezbollah, announced he will make a very important speech on Friday at 3 p.m. He's already made it, actually. Um, says the speculation is that he will declare Hezbollah's entrance into the war. Well, actually, he didn't. He's sort of kind of equivocal. He didn't want to go one way or the other. And Israeli analysts, in fact, I have another source of information, a man called Mordecai Kidar, uh, who's expert in Arab affairs. He says that Hezbollah... Uh, actually has fallen out with Hamas because they, Hamas jumped the gun. They did it without conferring with Hezbollah and they were hoping to have a united attack from Hezbollah and Hamas at the same time with Iran joining in and that was scuppered by Hamas going too early. And now America's been roused and Israel is roused and Hezbollah know that if they do go in, they're going to get clobbered by the uh, IDF and by the Americans. 
and there's great pressure from the Lebanese general people telling Hezbollah not to get involved. But that's something we should really pray for, that they don't get involved, because if they do, then that's a real massive, could be a massive attack. They've got 150,000 missiles aimed at Israel, plus terrorists ready to go in and try and do what they did and Hamas did crossing the border. So, please pray, he says, that this front does not open. And he goes on to speak about his Yemen, Turkey. Turkey wants to send some troops down to fight Israel. Yemen's fired some rockets at Israel. Iran is there in the background. Uh, and as we've seen in London and around the world, you've got these massive demonstrations like what took place yesterday uh, with hundreds, thousands of people uh, screaming death to Israel uh, with absolutely horrific slogans being chanted, bomb Tel Aviv, bring an end to the Jewish state, all kinds of things taking place. And Jewish people themselves have been attacked. I mean, I heard of one Jewish man was down there. He had his kippah on, and they said, are you for Palestine? He said, well, I'm in favor of Palestinian people. Are you for Israel? He said, yes, and they beat him up. So we have this fear in the Jewish community around us. And it is a dangerous situation. And I have to say that in some ways, even we have, if we put ourselves up in the line and say that we're for Israel, we're making ourselves a target as well. Um, the last talk I did last week had 2,000 views on the internet, on the Bridge website, I think up to 200 on the Light for Last Days website. Hopefully they're all friends, but they may not all be. <laughs> and one has to recognize that if we stand up for Israel, we're going against a very powerful force which is militant, hostile, full of hate. And we have to pray that God will have mercy and have mercy upon Israel and upon the Jewish people. So those are a few things. I've got rest of Amir's letter there if you want to read it afterwards. But let's just have a word of prayer and pray for Israel and pray that for our protection and pray also for the preaching of the word of God now. Praise the Lord. Lord, we do thank you that we do have a God who answers prayer. We see that perhaps already you have intervened in preventing Hezbollah from getting involved uh, in a big way. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you continue to do that. Pray that you send confusion upon their leaders, that they would know what, not know what to do, and that you would prostrate their evil acts and prevent them from getting involved and sending rockets in a big way against Israel. And we pray also you give the Israelis knowledge what to do. We pray they will be able to preserve innocent life in Gaza, but also, Lord, that you bring down the Hamas and remove these terrorists from their position. And we pray that you'd remove the that influence of the Islamic regime in Iran, which is spreading terrorism around the Middle East and aimed at Israel. Just defend your people, Israel. Defend the Jewish people here in Golders Green in London and help us, Lord, to be a witness for you and keep us safe as well as we do this, Lord, we pray. In Yeshua, Jesus' name, amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, we're going to look at the first chapter of the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts chapter 1. I think we probably all agree we're living in perilous times. If you're living in perilous times, you need to have a faith in God and an understanding why you have that faith in God. Uh, and in this passage in the book of Acts, uh, there are actually four things which I'm going to bring out and one little subsection as well. It gives you confidence that the word of God is true. Describes events which already happened. Helps you understand the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and to share the gospel and also to look for the return of the Messiah. And there's a little subsection that you understand the timing of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. So with that in mind, let's read uh, these 14 verses from the book of Acts. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John truly baptized with the water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you should be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when he spoke of these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. When they'd entered, they went up into an upper room, the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued in, with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Praise the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Okay, I said there were four things which you want to bring out about this passage. One is a very good example of why you should have confidence in the truth of the word of God. That this word is not just a sort of made-up story. It's something which was written by people who were eyewitnesses, who saw it, who recorded what happened, and who given us a faithful record of the events concerning the ministry of the Lord Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and in the book of Acts, the ministry of the apostles in spreading the gospel, uh, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and going to the ends of the earth. The devil is continually attacking the word of God. First question in the Bible was Satan speaking to Eve and saying, hath God said? Question what God has said. And today they're continually doing this, continually trying to make you undermine your faith in the Bible. Uh, I was speaking to one of our neighbors the other day. He's a bit of a skeptic. And he was telling me how he'd been watching uh, programs on uh, the internet, which was telling him that the Gospels were written some 80 to 100 years later, made up by people who didn't see the events and lived a lot later. And there were many Gospels written, and at the Council of Nicaea, they just chose four, that these Gospels, where they could have chosen a lot more. That's kind of propaganda which people are given today. It's not true. And I had a good talk with him telling him why it wasn't true. But basically, is this story something which was made up by people much later, or is it the record of faithful people who saw it taking place? If you look in this uh, passage in the book of Acts, it notice that it speaks about uh, a former account, which I made, and he's speaking to a man called Theophilus, 
former account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now he's hearing a a following account of what Jesus is going to continue to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. So who's the man? Man is Luke. And what is the former account? It's the Gospel of Luke. If you go back to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them unto us. Seemed good to me, also having had, a perfect, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So according to his own credentials, these books, this, books, this book of Luke and book of Acts were written by people, by Luke himself, and with information from people who were eyewitnesses of the events which took place. Not a story made up much later, a story which, uh, an account of events which took place at the time. Uh, We're told actually by commentators that Luke himself was a first-rate historian. He got his facts right about the history, about the geography, about the customs of the people round about. Acts has a lot of information about events of the time relating to Jewish, Greek, and Roman society. All fit in with history, and you can actually locate them pretty much uh, by looking at other writers, Roman writers, Jewish writers, Josephus, to see that Luke got his facts right. Uh, The dates were pretty much 29 to 32, the death and resurrection of Jesus, 35 to 36, the conversion of Saul to become Paul. Uh, You read in the book of Acts that he was lured in a basket out of Damascus. In Corinthians, he tells us this happened in the days when Aretas was the governor of of Damascus. Uh, We know from history that Aretas stopped being the governor of Damascus around about 39 AD. So Paul had to be converted sometime before then. Speaks about his missionary journeys, how he went to the Jew first and then the Greek, uh, how the Jewish religion and ideas had spread to the Greeks. They'd had synagogues in the Greek areas where they taught the Torah. The Gentiles were God-fearers who attracted to Judaism as a higher uh, ethically religion than Greek or Roman gods and had a large number of Greeks who had converted to some form of Judaism. It was amongst them that Paul had most of his converts which upset actually the Jewish majority, which is why you had some antagonism between the Jewish members of the synagogue and Paul as he was preaching. Go on in Acts, it speaks about, for example, in 51 AD, Paul was in Corinth. doesn't give you the dates, but we know that was roughly the time. Uh, He was charged before a proconsul called Gallio. Uh, In Roman history, we can work out that Gallio was the proconsul in Corinth around 51 to 52 AD, exactly the right time when Paul would have been in Corinth. It also says that somebody called Aquila and Priscilla had come recently from Italy because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We know from history that that happened around this time as well. So it all fits in. You go to 59 AD, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. Acts 24 to 25, he had trials before a man called Felix and a man called Festus. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian, Festus succeeded Felix in 59 AD. Now, they don't give you those dates, by the way. Those are dates we've recorded back to them. But you can fit in with the dates given in those histories. Uh, so Felix was there, and he, according to Acts 27, Paul granted, Felix granted Paul's request to be tried in Rome. And Paul then went to Rome. You read about it in his, uh, his uh, boat trip, which ended up with a shipwreck off Malta. And when he got to Rome, he stayed in Rome for around two years, it says. And Acts ends 
with a bit of an anticlimax, it just says Paul was living in Rome for, in his own rented house for two years. The curious thing about the ending of the book of Acts. Uh, now, Luke has been giving in the previous chapters a whole lot of information about the fact that Paul was going to go up to Rome to have a trial before the emperor. But he doesn't give any information about what happened at the trial. It doesn't tell you that Paul was actually acquitted and that he went on and did some ministry and then was probably executed around about 64 to 65 AD. Now, if this was written 80 years later, surely they'd have put that information in. So what's my point? What am I saying here? That Luke has to have completed the book of Acts before Paul went to his trial. Does that make sense? He didn't record anything about it. In which case, the book of Acts was written around 62 AD. Now, the book of Acts tells you that Luke had written a former document, which was the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and Luke tells us that other people had written Gospels before him, Matthew and Mark. So Luke's Gospel must have been written before 62 AD, which was 30 years after Jesus. And according to John Wenham, who's a kind of theologian who I believe in or follow, uh, he says that in redating the new books of the New Testament, Acts was written about 62 AD, Luke's Gospel around 54 AD, that's 20 years after Jesus, Mark's Gospel 45 AD, about 12 years after, Matthew about 40 AD, that's about seven or eight years after. So these were written by people who were eyewitnesses who saw these things happen. And probably they had sayings already which were written down. Uh, one commentary I read said that Matthew, as his job as a tax collector, would have had some kind of skill in speed writing. So he could have been actually writing down what Jesus was saying, pretty much as he was saying it. And recording these things so that they were kept and passed on to the church before they actually being formally made into the documents of the New Testament, which we have. So you have early, very early records of the life of Jesus. Now, why do I tell you that's important? If you have early records of something, it means it's, it's datable and it's also authoritative. It means it was written by people who saw what happened. They weren't making up funny stories. If you compare that with another famous book, the Quran, there's nothing which can date the Quran to when it was supposed to be written or it wasn't even written down by Muhammad. There's no record of when it was written. There's no record even of Muhammad existing. There's no record of Mecca existing. Uh, it's all a made-up story, probably 200 years later, uh, and definitely not authoritative. Compare that with the Bible. You have a very authoritative document. Why do I tell you this? Because it's important that you believe it. You're going to be under attack. You have to believe that this is a book which is, has substance to it. It's not just a made-up story. It's a book which is recorded for our benefit so that we can believe the words which are written in it. Okay, let's move on because I've got four other points to make, so better get on. Second point, coming back to Acts chapter 3, it says, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Again, we've got here eyewitnesses who saw this happen, and he speaks here about Jesus appearing by many infallible proofs. It wasn't hallucination. They saw him. And he spoke to them about the things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is the central fact of our faith in the Lord Jesus. That Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again from the dead. Uh, if you don't believe anything else, you have to believe that in order to be saved. Uh, so it's very important that we understand that this was a historical event. It wasn't just a made-up story something which really happened. 
uh, <coughs> and that Jesus actually appeared to the disciples. He even taught the disciples. He explained to them things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, we have one record of actually what he might have taught them in the end of Luke's gospel. Uh, in Luke 24, after the resurrection, verse 44, uh, Jesus comes to the disciples and he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written, which must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their minds, understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it was written, thus it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. Wouldn't you like to have been there at a Bible study with Jesus? About his, uh, how he fulfilled the prophecies. He's also here affirming also the fact that the prophecies in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the law, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Chetuvim, are all authoritative and given by God. He's there affirming the whole of the Old Testament Scripture, uh, known by Jewish people as the Tanakh, and you give him there the three divisions of the Jewish Scripture, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings, saying, they all speak about me. I'm there in the scriptures. And Jesus explained to the disciples the things which had happened, the crucifixion, how it fulfilled the prophecies of the suffering servant. No doubt he referred to Isaiah 53 as the one upon whom the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all, the one who bear the sins of the world and would rise again from the dead to see the travail of his souls and be satisfied, to see the, the effect of his work. And Jesus fulfilled all of this. And it's very important that we have a real understanding and a faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you don't believe anything else, make sure that you do believe that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And it's something which we can believe because it's recorded in the scriptures. And as I said, the scriptures themselves are given authority by God uh, as being recorded as events which really took place in time and space and which were recorded by faithful men who had been eyewitnesses of these things taking place. And we're also inspired by the Holy Spirit, which brings us on to the next point. Uh, Jesus speaks about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says, John, truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized or immersed or filled with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in verse 8, he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Third point about how you're going to be strong in these days to stand for the Lord, it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, we see how it happened. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. Uh, he's, Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. They speak in other tongues, other languages, and they begin to praise God. And then they preach the gospel. And Peter preaches the gospel, and he tells people why Jesus died and rose from the dead. And at the end, when they say, what shall we do then? Uh, in verse 38, he says, Peter, uh, when they heard this, it says, the people were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So here Jesus speaks about the confirmation of your faith by being baptized in water, being baptized as John, baptized with water, and also being baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And that was what happened on the first day of Pentecost. It's what happened right through the book of Acts. You can see that people were converted. They became Christians. They were then baptized. They were then filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a big issue about the tongues and the prophecy and the miracles, which did take place in the day of Acts. Do they continue to take place in our time? Well, I believe they do. Uh, but there are some who say that they've ceased. We have an issue which sometimes divides Christians. But if you look at the book of Acts, it's clear that God intended this pattern to be followed, to continue to be followed, that there should be uh, baptism in water, baptism in the Holy Spirit, as we are filled with the Holy Spirit and look to Jesus in order to preach the gospel and to spread his word into the nations. Baptism in water, by the way, is something which God does want people to do. And if you're baptized as a baby, that's actually not enough because you have to repent and believe. And we do have actually a couple of people who have asked me if they would like to be, would like to be baptized in the fellowship. So... Uh, we'll be arranging some classes for that later. And if anybody else in the fellowship would like to be, who's not been baptized, would like to be, have a word with me afterwards. But coming back to the Holy Spirit, we see that uh, under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit came and anointed people for tasks. But in the new covenant, God wants to send the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of God. He's holy. God is Three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus, is to come inside us, to fill us with his Holy Spirit, and to enable us to live according to God's law and not according to our own. Gives us power to bear witness to Jesus. And Jesus says it's going to be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Read through the book of Acts, that's what happens. There are witnesses in beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And perhaps one reason why the book of Acts doesn't end very dramatically is because it's going to continue. And God wants to continue the book of Acts through his people uh, right down to the second coming of Jesus. <clears throat> and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. How do you get the Holy Spirit? Another big question. Uh, in Luke chapter 11... Uh, Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, basic principle, actually, is you ask and you receive. So if you don't feel you're filled with the Holy Spirit or you want more of the Holy Spirit, you want more of God in your life, ask for it and ask God to give it to you. We do see in the book of Acts that the apostles did lay hands on the people and they received the Holy Spirit. That's also something which we can do, but... Whatever you do, get it, um, because you need that power. You need to get contact with God through the power line, which comes through the Holy Spirit. And it's available to us today. Notice that uh, in the second chapter, where, in, when Peter says, uh, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then says the promises to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So it wasn't limited to the people there. It was something which would go to people everywhere in the world, and right through from generation to generation, to your children and to your children's children. So pray to the Lord, may fill you with your Holy Spirit and receive power. When the Holy Spirit's come upon you, be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And God wants us to hit that power line, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be witnesses to him. We also need the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Um, in John 15, it says, He... When he, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. 
He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Uh, if you're going through a minefield, you want to have somebody who knows where the mines are so you can set you through so you won't get blown up. And we're going through a minefield in some ways in the world today, and we need the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. There's a whole lot of error out there, even quite a lot of error in this, the church. Uh, so we need to have the Holy Spirit to lead us into what is truth. And the truth will always point us to Jesus. But the Holy Spirit never glorifies himself. He always glorifies Jesus. And he brings us into a relationship with Jesus. Uh, he also wants to give us hope and love by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Romans chapter 5, it says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the Holy Spirit is real. He's not just a figment of the imagination. There is a real power which is available to every Christian who calls on the name of the Lord by the Holy Spirit, who puts their trust in Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. He was assaulted into heaven that he might send the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him. Little aside, verse 6, it says, When they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, that seems a bit out of place. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and going out into all the world to preach the gospel, and the disciples come and ask this question. A lot of commentators say that's a dumb question, which is disciples really didn't understand what was happening. They would understand when they'd received the power of the Holy Spirit, but they're asking this dumb question about Israel. Uh, and people like Calvin wrote and said that it was a mistake that they asked this question, and Jesus just putting the right, saying, forget about Israel, now it's the church. But if you look at the context, you see that it's not quite like that. It was not actually such a dumb question. If the disciples had had this Bible study with Jesus, he might have told them that there are two comings of the Messiah, one that he's coming with as a suffering servant to suffer and to die for our sins, uh, fulfilling Isaiah 53. There's another set of prophecies which speak about the Messiah coming, uh, reigning with power and bringing peace and justice to the world, saving Israel from their enemies and setting up his messianic kingdom from Jerusalem. Uh, now, the disciples might have thought, well, okay, we get that. First time you came, you came to suffer and die. you suffered and died at the cross. Now you've risen from the dead. Why don't you now bring in the kingdom from Israel? Okay, go and appear to Pontius Pilate and tell him that you're risen from the dead and to Caiaphas and all those other guys. Maybe they'd be a bit shocked and uh, you can call down fire from heaven if they don't like it. And you can establish the kingdom of God and save us immediately. Uh, maybe that was what they were thinking. We don't know. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, forget about Israel, it's now the church. He just says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. That implies to me that he's saying that there will be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. There will be a fulfillment of those prophecies of the sufferings of the reigning king, Messiah, but not now. Uh, not now, because now is your job is to receive the Holy Spirit and to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But just keep it there because there are many prophecies which do speak about Israel being scattered, being restored, brought back into the land through a time of trouble, and then the Messiah coming with power and glory and setting up his messianic kingdom. It says it's not for you to know the time or the seasons. You think of any other scripture which speaks about an event which is going to take place at an unknown time in the future? Matthew 24 speaks about the second coming. He says, you don't know the day or the hour of the second coming, my, my return. So be ready at all times. 
But he's saying that it's coming at a time which God has fixed. But he's not saying it's not going to happen. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Now, the main point of this passage is not to deal with uh, the question of Israel. But it is used by some people to say that God has finished with Israel on the basis of Jesus' response in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. My interpretation is not what he's saying. He's saying it's not now. And often we want something now, but we have to wait for it, don't we? Uh, and Jesus is saying, your priority now is to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and to go and preach the gospel to all nations, which is still our priority. I believe that we should stand by Israel and we should have an interest in Israel, but in the end, the priority we have is the priority of the gospel, to take the message of the good news to Jew first and also to the Gentile, that people might be saved before the second coming of Jesus. Okay, that leads into the last point about Jesus coming back again. Uh, <clears throat> verse 9, it says, Now he'd spoken these things while they watched. He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, saying, who said, This said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so there's, Jesus is speaking to them there. He's on the Mount of Olives. And uh, as he's speaking, a cloud comes and takes him up into heaven. He ascends into heaven, what we call the ascension of Jesus. Uh, he goes up, and as he's going up, there are two men, in other words, two angels who stand by him, and say to the disciples, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Otherwise, he says that Jesus was taken up from the Mount of Olives in a cloud into heaven, and he's going to come back again. Kind of interesting. Now, if you come to this church regularly, you know that I do believe in a literal second coming of Jesus Christ bodily return of the same Lord Jesus Christ who will come again, this time not as a suffering servant, but this time as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, with all the power of God at his disposal to put right the sin and the wickedness which humans have brought to this earth, and to set up his messianic kingdom, which according to Revelation will be a thousand-year reign in which he reigns from Jerusalem and brings peace and justice to the world. Notice that he went up in the cloud. What does the cloud represent? Does it mean it was a cloudy day? Or does the cloud actually represent something? If you look in scripture, you'll find that there are references to the pillar of cloud, the references to the Shekinah, the glory cloud, which filled the tabernacle uh, when it was dedicated to the Lord, and also which filled the temple when it was dedicated to the Lord by Solomon. It says in 1 Kings 8 that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, the glory cloud. The priests actually weren't able to minister because of this glory cloud which came into the temple. Uh, so the Shekinah, which represents Shekinah, means the dwelling place, thing which, where God dwells, represents God coming to dwell with humans. And when you see this Shekinah coming, it's a sign that God is coming. It's a sign of the presence of the Lord. So when Jesus went up in the, in the Shekinah, it means that the, the cloud, the glory cloud, was taking Jesus up into heaven, back to glory, where he'd come from. Uh, and in Matthew 24, it says, uh, Jesus says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man 
coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So when Jesus comes again, he's going to come again on the cloud, this time with the, cl- the cloud representing the glory cloud, the power of God, and the presence of the Lord. Uh, Jesus even quoted this before his trial, before the Sanhedrin, when he was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, uh, by the chief priest? And Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless I said to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, referencing Daniel chapter 7. When the chief priest heard that, he said that he's speaking blasphemy and he's worthy of death because he's saying that he is the son of man, he's the glory, he's the one who's coming in the name of the Lord to bring the end of this present world dispensation and to bring in his new world order, his new kingdom in which he's going to reign on the earth. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Okay, so Daniel prophesies here about one who's coming who's called the Son of Man, who comes before the Ancient of Days, comes before the throne of God and he comes on the clouds of heaven and he's given dominion over the nations, over the peoples and languages who should serve him. He's given an eternal dominion. His empire is not going to be like the other empires which Daniel has spoken of which will rise and fall and which will have their power taken away from them because his empire, his kingdom is the one which is going to stand forever and ever. And if you're part of that kingdom, you actually have a glorious future in the kingdom of God. So no matter what happens on this earth, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you are one of those who's going to be taken up to meet with him at the coming rapture of the church, then come back with him and reign with him as he comes in the clouds of heaven. A glorious future for all those who believe in Jesus. And his kingdom is not going to pass away. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but his kingdom will not pass away. Second point is that he's taken up from a place called the Mount called Olivet, Hazetim in Hebrew. It's a mount, it's a high hill, it's not a mountain like Everest, but it's a high hill to the east of Jerusalem. If you've seen it, if you've been to Jerusalem, probably you've been up there and you have a marvelous view of the old city. If you haven't been to Jerusalem and you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, almost certainly they're taken from the Mount of Olives because that's the place where you can get the best view over the old city of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives is a place which has significance in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's the place from which the Shekinah, the glory of God, departed in the days of Ezekiel. He saw it departing from the temple to the Mount of Olives and then departing because of the sin which the people were committed. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 44, it says that the Shekinah is going to come back into the temple, the restored temple, from the east, from the direction of the Mount of Olives. Jesus gave his teaching on the last days, in Matthew 24, on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And according to Zechariah chapter 14, when the nations of the world are gathered together against Jerusalem to battle, then the Lord is going to come and stand on the Mount of Olives and proclaim peace and justice to the world and set up his messianic kingdom. So the Mount of Olives is interesting that he departed from the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back to the Mount of Olives. And I believe that we're living in the days which are leading up to that. 
how long we have, only God knows, but we can see the events taking place around us, especially what's happening in Israel and the Middle East, which are preparing the way for the second coming of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And when he comes, he's going to resurrect the dead, he's going to uh, rule for a thousand years, and then in the new heavens and new earth for eternity. So finally, what should we do? Uh, we read that what they did, uh, verse 10, 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, Sabbath day's journey. When they'd entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. <coughs> Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Barth Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So if you'd like to have been at the uh, Bible study where Jesus was giving his uh, talk about the, his resurrection, uh, would you like to have been at that prayer meeting? <laughs> would have been good, wouldn't it? Imagine all the disciples coming together to pray in expectation of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the next chapter. Notice that uh, Mary was there mother of Jesus and Jesus' brothers. Uh, so the family was there. Actually, the brothers of Jesus up to this time had not believed in him, and it's here to 1 Corinthians 15. It appears that Jesus made a special appearance to his brother James, or Yaakov, who then became a believer and one of the leaders of the early church. So you had coming together of all the family as well. Interesting, this is actually the last mention of Mary, by the way. And although Mary has a place of honor, uh, as the mother of Jesus, she doesn't have a place of honor as the Queen of Heaven or any kind of intermediary, as the Catholics say. Uh, she had a part to play along with the disciples, but they were all together in seeking God to the gift of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. And as we come to the end of this talk, what we should do is to pray to God to fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might come together in unity to preach the gospel and to share the good news to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That's what they did, and that's what God honored in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon them and began the glorious process of spreading the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, even to London and to all sorts of other places around the world from which some of you come, but which are all places which God loves, which God has people in, and which God wants to reach with the good news of the gospel, which is actually the only bit of good news we've got today, because there's no good news in the news on the BBC or in the newspapers, but there is good news in this book. So believe this book, believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, and go out in the name of Jesus to spread the good news that Jesus is Lord, that he's come to save us, that he's coming again with power and glory to bring in his messianic kingdom. Let's just have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that it tells us about Jesus. Thank you that you died for us, that you rose from the dead. Thank you these are all facts of history. They're not just stories made up. Thank you, Lord, that you are alive today, that you rose and ascended to heaven, and that you're coming back again in power and glory to judge the world in righteousness. And Lord, we pray that many people in these last days will hear your word and be saved. Both Jews and Gentiles may call upon the name of Yeshua for salvation. And we do pray, Lord, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us to be your witnesses in these days. In Jesus' name.
Amen.